Why should I obey God? Why should you obey God? Perhaps you're here this morning, uh, and that's a question that's been nagging you. A question that's been bouncing around in your, your head. Why should I submit my life to God? Why should I live according to His word? According to His principles of righteousness? Would it really be utter foolishness to disobey God? Would it, would it really be so bad? I mean, I see so many deceitful, duplicitous degenerates running around in this depraved world. It doesn't seem like they're all that deprived by their disobedience. Does God really want my obedience anyway? Does he even care if I disobey? Why should I obey God? This morning, we continue our study through the book of Deuteronomy. In particular, we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 to 43, where Moses, he, he not only exhorts the people of Israel to obey God, but he tells them why they should. I, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're going to be sticking our nose in the text a lot this morning. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 148, 148. And, and while you're turning there, please allow me to set a little bit more of the context of our study together this morning. Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book of the Bible. In God's grand and glorious true story, he has made the world and everything in it. He made man, he gave him his law uh, and a good land to live in. Uh, sadly, Adam and Eve rejected God's law. They decided to disobey God's law, and so God exiled them from paradise in the Garden of Eden. Before sending them out, though, he, God, he, he gave them this promise that one day he would send a son who would defeat sin and death. And as the story of the Bible rolls on, God calls out this man named Abraham. And, and, and we learn that through him, God will bless the nations. God will make of Abraham into a great nation and give that nation that comes from Abraham's line a good land. Through the offspring of Abraham, the promised Savior will come. And true to his word, God multiplied Abraham's offspring, rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, and he led them to the land that he promised to give them. Sadly, as we were reminded in our, our last study, our last two studies in Deuteronomy, the people of Israel, they rebelled against God's commands to, to go into the land of Canaan, the land that God gave them. They rebelled against that command, and so they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And during those 40 years, an entire generation of Israelites died. Everyone 20 years old and up died in the wilderness. And the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' address to this new generation, to this generation standing on the edge of the promised land, ready to go in and receive God's promises. Deuteronomy, it's comprised of three sermons by Moses, and so far we've only made it through the first half of Moses' first sermon. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to the second half of Moses' first sermon. And the point of this sermon from Moses is, is simply this. Go into God's land and keep God's commands. The point of Moses' first sermon is that. 
Go into God's land and keep God's commands. Moses expresses this in two ways. Through example, first, and then second, through exhortation. In Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 3, Moses gives examples of why and how the children of Israel should go into God's land. And now in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the chapter that we're looking at together this morning, Moses mainly turns to example. Though some, uh, so through exhortation. Uh, though some examples remain, uh, in the main, Moses is saying over and over and over again, keep God's commands, obey God's laws, follow God's statutes. I want you to see this for yourself. So take a look at just the first verse there in chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord the God of your fathers is giving you. Now skip down to almost the, the, the end of our passage to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 4 verse 40. Same thing Moses basically says there. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Everything in between verse 1 and verse 40, those two verses that we just read, is, is exhortation really. It's earnest encouragement to, to listen, to keep, do, and obey God's law. Moses does something else too. He gives his hearers reasons why they should obey and keep God's law. In fact, he gives them five reasons. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 4 through 43, Moses tells us we should obey God. That is to say, we should keep his law because one, God is righteous. Two, because God is jealous. Three, because God is merciful. Four, because he alone is God. And five, because God is generous. That's the thrust of Deuteronomy chapter four. In view of who God is and what he has done, keep his commands. If you're looking for a single sentence that summarizes the point of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 to 43, that would be it. In, in view of who God is and what he has done, keep God's commands. If you're taking notes this morning, those five reasons for why we should obey God, they're going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And not to worry, if you didn't catch all five of them, I will repeat each of those points as we're moving into each new section like I'll do right now. So let's begin with our first point. The first reason for why we should obey and keep God's commands is because he is righteous. He is righteous. Why should we obey God? Because he is righteous. Take a look now at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Listen as I, as I read these and follow along. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God, are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom 
and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Well, these verses, they are packed full of exhortation and admonitions to listen, keep, and do the commands of Yahweh. And let's just take note of this staggering orientation toward God's law. God's law was always meant to be a body of legislation lived. It was meant to be applied and worked out in the daily lives of the people of Israel. It did not merely stand outside of the lives of the people of Israel, but it was meant to be on display and observable in their lives. And they've seen practically what that brings when they do keep God's law. In short, it will save your life. How do they know that? Well, they know that according to verse 3 by what they saw take place at Baal Peor. What happened at Baal Peor? Uh, That incident is recorded in Numbers chapter 25, just earlier in the Pentateuch. And it really should have been fresh in the minds of Moses' hearers. It had only happened just a short time before this sermon from Moses. In fact, if you take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 29, it's the last verse just before this chapter. Chapter 4 begins, you'll see that the people of Israel are encamped at Beth Peor. That is where the false god Baal Peor is worshipped. At Beth Peor, or Baal Peor, a number of the men of Israel abandoned the worship of the one true God by joining the fertility cult of the Baal Peor. A number of men in Israel began to fornicate with the daughters of Moab, worshiping at that fertility cult. And in doing so, they abandoned the worship of the one true God. No wonder sin is so often referred to in the scriptures in terms of adultery. And may I say, just as a a quick aside, uh, the sexual immorality that we are seeing run rampant in our society is nothing new. We have evidence of it in the scriptures, don't we? It's nothing but an expression of rebellion against God and his good design. And we, as the people of God, must be careful not to assume that we are immune from danger. For we are never too far from our own Baal, Peor. Men of Israel were forsaking their covenant God and binding themselves to a false god. And this pursuit of illicit intimacy led to the death of 24,000 Israelites. Sexual sin can lead to death. It can steal your life away. Notice, however, that those who remained faithful to the righteous God lived. God is righteous, and he will not tolerate unrighteousness. The wages of sin is death, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6.23. Remember God's righteousness displayed in the death of the disobedient at Baal Peor, Moses is saying to his hearers. That's how Moses negatively emphasizes God's righteousness. But he emphasizes God's righteousness from a positive perspective. You see there in verse 4, you see this letting go of God is set in sharp contrast to those who held fast to the righteous God. Verse 4. See, it pays 
to obey. You know that because you're alive, Moses is saying to his hearers. In verses 6 to 8, Moses subtly brings out this reality that disobedience brings death and righteousness life. He does it through the lens and the language of wisdom. Verse 6, keeping God's commands will be your wisdom and the nations will see and say that you are wise, Israel. And this should remind us, it should have reminded them of Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Remember, God had given Adam and Eve his command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But, but when Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Moses is telling the people of Israel in the language of Genesis 3 that wisdom doesn't come by way of rebellion, but by following God's righteous commands. Keeping God's righteous commands, in fact, it reveals God's righteousness. This is how other nations will come to know and to to see that God is righteous through the people of Israel keeping, obeying, and doing his righteous commands. Their their obedience to God is missionary in character. Christian, do you know that your obedience to God works in much the same way? What did Jesus say to his disciples in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35? He said this, Jesus said to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, by keeping Jesus' command to love fellow believers, we show the world what it means to be disciples of Jesus. You see that there in verses 7 and 8. See, other nations will look on the lives of the people of Israel and say to themselves, there's no other God like that in the world. There's there's no God so near and so righteous. And the surrounding nations would have known that as the the laws of of their nations, of the pagan nations around Israel, were thoroughly corrupt and unjust and predatory. Israel was to keep God's laws because he is righteous, and the world would see that through them. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the value of your obedience to Jesus in revealing his character, his righteous character to the world. Be mindful that your pursuit of Christ, it's not the same thing as evangelism. You've probably heard it said, you know, uh, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. That's really just a bunch of nonsense. Of course it's necessary to use words. The word evangel means to proclaim, to herald. You've actually got to proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to evangelize. And still, What we learn here and other places from God's word is that our lives give testimony to God's righteous character. By your walk and your life, you are either telling the truth about the righteousness of God or you're telling a lie. Keep the commands of the Lord Jesus and demonstrate his wonderful righteousness to this needy world. One more quick word of application from verse 2. Don't add or subtract from Jesus' commands. Don't take God's commands into your hands and decide what is good and what's evil. 
I'm going to keep that one. I'm going to discard that one. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. All of God's commands are good. They are righteous and they are the path of wisdom. Keep God's commands because he is righteous. And because your obedience reveals his righteousness. This brings him honor and glory. In verses 9 to 24, the next set of verses we're going to look at, Moses turns to to make a related point. That we should keep God's commands because he is jealous. Our God is a jealous God. He is a lover of his people. And he wants all of the love of his people. He does not want to share it with another. This is why he forbids the making of idols. And as we read these verses, let me encourage you to take special note of how Moses evokes the realities uh, related to love. See and, and listen for how he speaks of our hearts and our souls and our minds and our affections. Follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 9 to 24, where we're looking at the truth that God is jealous. He is jealous. Verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded to you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules, that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of fire, beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies through the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the the, the likeness of, of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you. And he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you for The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. I trust that you see there what verse 24 has to do with verses 
9 to 23 and why it's related to this point, to God's jealousy. Verses 9 to 23 are Moses' exhortation to the people of Israel to take care, to, to keep their hearts and guard their souls from loving the creation more than the creator. This is just another way of saying, don't love anything or anyone in the whole cosmos more than God. Moses particularly focuses in on one expression of loving the creation more than the creator, idolatry. And this would be highly relevant to the people of Israel as they were preparing to enter the land of Canaan, a land filled with idols and idolatry. Moses reminds the people of Israel that they were to resist idolatry. And he does so by reminding them of the Ten Commandments you see there in verse 13. And not only does Moses mention the Ten Commandments, but he mentions that they effectively served as the stipulations or obligations of the covenant that God made with his people at Horeb, which is it's just another name for Mount Sinai. Covenants, as we thought about just a couple of weeks ago, are comprised of parties with promises that produce obligations and bonds. They are uh, an expression of a, of a bonded relationship and its implications. God and the people of Israel were, were bonded together in a covenant relationship at Sinai or Horeb. And the people of Israel were to keep the stipulations of the covenant. Moses is reminding the people of Israel of their commitment to keep the Ten Commandments. And what is interesting is that in verses 9 to 24, Moses is basically giving us an extended meditation on the second commandment. So you see, if verses 1 to 8 reminded the people of Israel that they were to have no other God, first commandment, like they did at Baal Peor, then verses 9 to 24 remind the people of Israel that they are not to make graven images of Yahweh. That's the second commandment. Moses draws their minds back to God's appearance to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, and he underscores for them in verse 12 that though they heard the sound of words, you see there, they saw no form. He says the same thing again there in verse 15. And the implication, of course, is that since they didn't see a form, they shouldn't make a form. God has not chosen to reveal himself in a form, at least not yet. Rather, for now, he has chosen to reveal himself in words. In time, he would take on human form in the person of Jesus. Jesus, of course, is the word. It was God himself made flesh. And what we're learning here is that God tells his people that there, there are forms of worship that are unacceptable to him. You can't worship the right God in the wrong way. We see that with the golden calf in Exodus 34. The people of Israel made the golden calf not to worship a false god, but to worship Yahweh. And God is telling his people, I'm not like the gods of the surrounding nations. You can't adopt their forms of worship and apply them to our relationship. In fact, God is effectively telling his people through Moses, you don't get to decide how I'm worshipped. I do. That's what God is saying to his people. As David Peterson has said, quote, the worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. See, God knows how love is best expressed. And he tells us how to express that love. 
He even tells us that he is jealous for that expression of love. He brought his people out of Egypt because he loves them. They were his inheritance, the the good, generous, and glorious gift that he gave to himself. That's what God is saying here. God loves his people. That's why he brought them out of Egypt, so that they would be his people and he would be their God. He wants them to express their love for him. He doesn't want them to forget their covenant. He doesn't want them to forget him. He is a jealous lover. The love of his people is to go to no other. So what what do we need to do? How do we welcome God's jealousy for us in our lives? Well, uh, Moses, he is an eminently practical preacher. He tells us. See, we are to take care and to keep our souls diligently. You see that in verse 9. We're to watch ourselves very carefully. Verse 15. In other words, we've got to be mindful and reflective about what tempts us to worship the creation over the creator. Are we tempted toward the love of money and material things? Are we tempted toward power and prominence? Are we tempted toward comfort or control? Toward busyness? Uh, people, tempted toward food in some ways, or, or good works. What are the things that, that order and, and govern our lives? What sets our schedule and, and kind of determines our agenda? What, what makes us angry? Um, the inverse of that probably is telling us what we love. What, what makes us anxious or, or afraid? Asking questions like these may help us to diagnose our our idols and our our loves, the things in the creation that we're worshiping, rather than recognizing that they're they're actually good gifts from the Creator. They weren't meant to be worshipped. He was. They were meant to point us to Him. There's another bit of practical application that Moses provides that will help the people of Israel fight against the temptation toward idolatry. He tells them to teach their children about God. Did you notice that in verse 9? Teaching your children, or children generally, about God will help to guard your heart and soul against loving false gods. You see, when you have to explain the greatness of God to others, you will be helped in your own heart. And I would suggest that when Moses mentions their children's children in verse 9, he's urging the people of Israel to give themselves to teaching their children so thoroughly that they can pass on that teaching to the next generation. So parents, don't be satisfied with a surface-level understanding of the things of God for your children. Teach your children so that they are equipped to teach their children, should the Lord give them children. And if you don't have children, and you struggle with idolatry, which, by the way, if you're human, you do, If you don't have children and you struggle with idolatry, then find some children to teach. In fact, I've got good news for you. Um, There are a lot of children here in this church family, children who need to be taught. Maybe you think to yourself, oh man, he he is giving that uh, tired old application that preachers always give to single people, be involved in children's ministry. Yes, I am. Uh, And you know what? I don't feel bad about it at all. Um, 
What's more, I think you actually need to hear it. Do you know why? Because Satan would love to see the children of our church lost and condemned to hell. And we need you in that fight. We, we need you. For the sake of the souls of the children of this church, find a way to tell them the truth about Jesus. For the sake of your own soul, in expressing your jealous love for God, teach the children of our congregation about Jesus. And, and thank you to so many of you who have already joined that fight. I was so delighted when our sister Grace let me know a couple of weeks ago that we already have our, our summer Sunday school teachers kind of filled. Praise God uh, that so many of you, almost all of you, are joining in this fight. It's a privilege to co-labor with you in this. And we should all be involved in teaching uh, the children of our church. But not only that, we can and should be involved in teaching someone who's, who's perhaps younger than us in the faith. So who are you helping to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Being active and engaged in that will actually help your own heart and soul to fight against idolatry. So when you crowd your life with the things of God, those idols tend to be pushed out. Keep God's commands because he's jealous for you. He is jealous for your love. Christian, can you, can you believe that? He's jealous for, for your love. Take some time and think this afternoon about what that says about God's love for you, that he's jealous for your love. Keep God's commands because he's jealous for you. Moses, he gives another reason why we should keep God's commands. In verses 25 to 31, we learn that we should keep God's commands because he's merciful. Now, now there's something that you need to understand about verses 25 to 31, and that's this. These verses are, are, are prospective. So, in other words, Moses adopts something of a, a prophetic posture. He, he looks forward into the future, and he predicts that the people of Israel will sin. And, and that like Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, the people of Israel will be exiled too from the promised land of Canaan. What should they do when they sin? They should repent and return to God because he's merciful. This is Point number three, God is merciful. He's merciful. Take a look at verses 25 to 31 now. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. See, Moses, he has told the people of Israel that they need to teach their children and their children's children the way 
and the law of the Lord. And now he tells them that future generations will disobey the Lord. That they would give themselves to the worship of other gods and do the very thing that God commanded them not to do. Break the second commandment, like we just thought about. Moses, as you can see there in verse 26, even calls heaven and earth to bear witness against the people of Israel. They, they stand as, as part of the, the jury that's listening in on this case, and they're going to convict Israel. And Moses, amazingly, he informs the people of Israel that they will not live long in the land. Their evil will rise to unsustainable and intolerable levels. Their evil will become a stench in the nostrils of God. And as a result, he will drive the people of Israel out of the good land that he had given to them. Now, this actually came to pass in 722 BC when God removed the northern kingdom of Israel from their land by the hand of the Assyrians. And the, the southern kingdom of Judah was also dispossessed in 586, 587, depending on how you date it, uh, BC, by the Babylonians. Moses, you see here, he was a true prophet of God. He was a true prophet of Yahweh. Yahweh promised to shatter and scatter his people, and he did. And while in exile, many of the people of Israel will give themselves over to their idolatry and continue in their sin. But, but notice, notice the but there, verse 29. But, though rebellion is coming in the future, so is repentance and restoration. In fact, God will use the discipline of exile. He will use that suffering in the lives of his people to lead them to repentance such is the nature of God's kindness and mercy. Sometimes he uses ruin to drive us to repentance. Sometimes he uses suffering to teach us the way of godly sorrow for sin. And notice too how God's people, how God will respond to his people when they seek him with all their heart and soul. In verse 31, he will not cast them out. He will not leave them destroy them, or forsake them. You see, destruction was never the final design of the exile. It was divinely designed to show God's people their need for a Savior. Just as God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, clinging to the promise of a son who will save, so Moses tells the people of Israel that when they are forced to leave the land due to their sin, they should cling to the promise of God's mercy. Just as a help in your Bible reading, maybe some of you are reading through the Bible this year and you're dreading the part when you come to the prophets, just for a help when you get there. Um, you know those detailed books of those guys, these dramatic visions? This is exactly what they're talking about. They're calling the people of Israel to turn from their sin. They're calling heaven and earth to witness. They're reminding them of the threat of exile. They're casting these dramatic pictures and visions of judgment serve as a warning for the people of Israel. They're saying, repent, return. Who knows, God may yet relent of disaster. But sometimes, sometimes the prophets are saying, Israel, it's too late. You, you've gone too far, and exile is sure to come. If you, if you want to understand the Old Testament prophets in your Bible, you need to understand what Moses is saying here. See, the exile is not the end of hope for the people of God. Though they have broken the covenant of law, they've broken the covenant made at Sinai, that does not lead God to break his promises or his covenant with Abraham, 
the covenant he made with their fathers. God will keep his promises to Adam to send a son. He will keep his promises to Abraham to send an offspring. It will be a blessing to the nations. God will keep his promises to give his people a good land that will never be taken from them again. When will that happen? See, Moses, he's, he's speaking prospectively to his hearers. So, so when will or, or did this repentance, restoration, and return to God take place? Well, uh, in, in no doubt, it happened in small measure with the decree of Cyrus in 539 B.C. With that decree, the people of Israel were, were allowed to return to the land and rebuild the temple. Still, as the years roll on and the New Testament opens, so we continue reading our Bibles, it's clear that the heaviness of the exile has actually not lifted. It hasn't fully lifted. The people of Israel are still oppressed They live under the rule of a foreign nation, and no king from David's line reigns on the throne. The kingdom was not restored after the decree of Cyrus. So when did that doorway of mercy open? In the end, it's finally Jesus who brings the covenant promises to Abraham to their ultimate fulfillment. Jesus is the one who ends the exile from God. He is the offspring of Abraham, who is a blessing to the nations and secures for his people a land for all time. That's what the Apostle James argues in Acts chapter 15, verses 13 to 17. God's mercy is most richly and fully displayed in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who brings the people of God out of exile by going into exile for them, by being cut off from the land of the living, by dying. He is the one who delivers God's people from the destruction of eternal death. Friend, I wonder, maybe you feel like you have suffered under God's discipline, uh, like the people of Israel suffered under God's discipline in the exile. Do you feel like God has done that in your life? Do you feel like God has brought you to a dead end or to an end of yourself? Can I, can I ask you, are you seeking God with your whole heart and soul, like verse 29 says? Friends, seek him with your whole heart and soul. Don't continue in rebellion. Come to him for mercy, for forgiveness and pardon. Friend, God gave his one and only most beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God. He fully kept God's law, where not a single one of us here this morning hasn't. We have all broken God's commands. Jesus, because he was fully God and fully man, he could fully represent us before God and fully keep his law all the way to the end, the perfect life of obedience to God the Father. Jesus was perfectly sinless, and yet he gave up his life on the cross to pay the punishment that was due to our sins, that was due to the people of God. Jesus was paid the wages of sin in his death. And three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us that he was who he says he was. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus declared. He is our God and our Savior. He is our hope. And Jesus calls now ruined sinners like us to make a return to God. And we do that by turning from our sins 
and turning to him in faith, believing that he lived and died and was raised from the grave. Jesus saved sinners like us from being eternally exiled from God's presence. So friend, would you confess your sins and find mercy in Jesus? And, and if you want to think more about the mercy of God, then please do come. Come and find me at the door after the service. Speak with a friend or, or family member that you came here with this morning. Learn about the mercy of God towards sinners like you and me. And children, youth, young adults, I especially want you to take note about this. Take note about this, about God, that he's, he's merciful. Children, youth, young adults, I, I suspect that there will be days when you will be tempted to doubt that God could ever love you. Uh, there will be days when you will you'll be saddened and burdened by your sin. And please hear what God's word says to sinners like you and me. He is ready to receive us. He is ready to extend mercy and forgive us. So, so when, you, when you feel like, I've sinned again for the hundredth time, know this. His mercy is more. In the words of that song that we sing here from time to time, remember this. What, what patience what patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He, he welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. It's true. They're many, aren't they? But his mercy is more. Praise God for his mercy. Come to him and receive his mercy. Moses, he gives us another reason for keeping God's commands. You see there in verses 32 to 40. Keep God's commands because he alone is God. Why obey anyone else when there's only one God? See if you can spot this idea as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 32 to 40. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or ever was heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard, and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself, from the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you the nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day, know therefore today and lay it to your heart. That the Lord 
is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. You see, if the previous verses were, were prospective, looking forward, right? These verses are, are retrospective. They're looking back. Here, Moses is not looking forward on the future events to exhort his hearers to keep God's commandments. Here, Moses is actually looking backward on the past events of the rescue from Egypt and the, the giving of the law from Sinai for the purpose of exhorting his hearers to keep God's commands. Great preachers ask great questions, and, and Moses asks a couple of great questions here, doesn't he? Moses asks his hearers a series of rhetorical questions about their past, about what they have experienced as a nation in order to lead his hearers to the conclusion that there's no other God but Yahweh. Uh, Look at verse 33 again. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard, and still live? The answer is obviously no. And then in verse 34, he does the the same thing, but he adopts this this technique of kind of piling uh, up mighty work after mighty work after mighty work that leads to the conclusion of verse 35. Look at verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Do you hear what Moses is saying? Israel, he's saying, Israel, God designed your history and your experience of it to bring you to the knowledge of this truth, that there is no other God but Yahweh. No God has done the things that your God has done. And Moses, he drives the point home again in verses 36 to 38, reminding them of their history and their salvation from Egypt. And then remarkably, Moses utters the words of verse 39. Remember verse 35, you've been made to know that there is no other God, that Yahweh alone is God. And now in verse 39, Moses says, know this, There is no other God. Well, Moses, make up your mind. Which is it? Uh, Right? Do do the people of Israel know that there is no other God? Or must they come to know that there is no other God? Yes. Yes. They, They have been brought to know that Yahweh is God alone. His great, mighty, and utterly unique acts in Israel's history reveal that. And... They need to embrace that knowledge and live in light of it. It needs to be impressed and implanted into their hearts day after day after day that there is no other God. I mean, isn't that our experience, right, as believers? We've we've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to remind ourselves each and every day that he is our Savior. And I'm sure that you've noticed that In these verses, we've already mentioned them, that Moses speaks of these two paradigmatic events in Israel's history. Their rescue from Egypt and the giving of God's law at Sinai. These two events reveal God's uniqueness and that he alone is God. And so we arrive at the therefore of verse 40. See, all of what Moses has said has been for the purpose of grounding his exhortation to the people of Israel for them to obey God, to keep God's statutes and commands. It's what biblical scholars call thesis in service of perinesis, uh, indicative leading to imperative, or put more simply, the Mike Law version, reality for real living. If there's only one God, and there is only one God, then we should obey him. We 
should keep God's commands because he alone is God. Finally, and briefly, Moses demonstrates for the people of God, people of Israel, why and why they should keep God's commands. They should keep God's commands because he is generous. This is what we see in the last few verses of our text. 41 to 43. God is generous. He is generous. Take a look at verse 41. Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan, that the manslayer might flee there. Anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without being at enmity with him in the time past, he may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. Moses has concluded his sermon. Right? He, he's no longer preaching really in these verses. Instead, he's, he's giving away God's good gift of land to his people. Moses is giving and establishing these cities of refuge that God gave to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. These, these cities were just outside of the promised land. Remember, God not only gave uh, the people of Israel land inside Canaan, but he also gave them a little bit of land just outside, across the Jordan. That's what is happening here. Earlier in the Pentateuch, in, in Exodus chapter 21, uh, we learn that these cities were to be established. And along with a good land, Moses is also establishing God's good law, right? His system of justice. He sets up these cities of refuge. Uh, we're not going to take time for kind of a deep dive uh, on these verses. But what we need to know right now is that this, I think this is a brilliant conclusion to Moses' sermon. It may seem strange to us at first. But you see, Moses' sermon, it has been entirely oriented toward encouraging the people of Israel to obey God's commands and to enter into the promised land and live according to God's law. These actions from Moses, they symbolize and summarize precisely just how the people of Israel are to live before God. Moses is really getting the ball rolling for the people of Israel. It's like he's, he's running alongside them like a father uh, helps his, his child learn how to ride a bike. He's, he's guiding them as they learn to ride. This is their preparation for riding across the Jordan, taking the rest of the land that God has given them, and living out the loving law of the Lord. This is just the down payment on their full inheritance. And it should have encouraged them to give themselves to God, to obeying him for the full conquest of the land. This speaks to God's generosity. For if it tells us that God will keep his promises to generously give his people this initial portion of the land, then he will keep his promises to give his people the whole land. How should the people of Israel live in light of his generosity? In gratitude, they should go forward, enter the land, and keep God's commands. These were just the cities on one side of the Jordan that needed to be established. There were other cities that needed to be established too. They should receive what they've been promised. But, but what about us? In light of Jesus, what can we learn from Moses' sermon here? And by the way, this is where I'd like for us to conclude. In light of Jesus, what can we learn from Moses' sermon? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29, the passage that we read from earlier in the service, tells us how Moses' teaching from Deuteronomy uh, shapes, should, in light of the redeeming word of Jesus, should shape our lives. And I trust the women of our congregation actually know where I'm going with this, as they've been thinking about this passage over the weekend. 
Perhaps more keenly than many of us here today, our sisters in Christ are well aware that the writer of Hebrews picks up these images of doom and gloom and fire from Mount Sinai. And he tells believers uh, that they have the same righteous, jealous, merciful, unique, and generous God. Still, because of Jesus, things are radically different. In Hebrews 12, we learn that New Testament believers have not come to Mount Sinai or Horeb. We have not come to Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant. No, instead we have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. And most important of all, we've come to Jesus, the the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. You see, the final salvation of believers in Jesus Christ is so certain, it is so certain that the writer of the Hebrews speaks of it as a thing that's already been accomplished. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He says to believers, you've already arrived. How can he speak of our final salvation as a thing already having been accomplished? He's already given you the promised land of heaven. How is that possible? It's possible because we have an even better mediator than Moses. We have a better guarantor of a better covenant with God than Moses. And the writer of the Hebrews says this. See to it that you, you Christian, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. In other words, listen and obey Jesus. Keep his commands. Brothers and sisters, if the people that Moses was speaking to should have listened to his exhortation, and kept God's commandments, how much more should we, the recipients of a better, superior covenant, how much more should we listen to Jesus and obey his commands? The gift given to us is now so much greater than salvation from physical slavery in Egypt. The gift given to us is so much greater than a physical promised land of Canaan. In view of who God is and what he has done in Jesus, keep his commands. He really does care if you obey. He really does want you to shine like the stars of heaven and brightly proclaim his righteousness. He really does love you and is jealous for your love. He really is merciful and he really wants you to magnify his mercy in your life through regular repentance and return Unto Jesus Christ. He really is the only God. There is no other. And he really has generously given you his son. And a home in heaven. Why should we obey God? Because of who he is. And what he has done for us. In Jesus. That's why. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your righteousness.